0: Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast, brought to you in partnership with Boris FX and our sponsor, Jump Desktop. I'm Steve Hulfish. I'm a working film and TV editor. For the last eight years, I've done more than 380 interviews with the world's best editors. I've been using Boris FX products for more than 20 years, and I'm proud to partner with them to bring you some great filmmaking content. Today on Art of the Cut, Oscar nominee Matt Chesse discusses the editing of A Man Called Otto. Matt was nominated for an Ace Eddie and an Oscar for Finding Neverland. His other feature film credits include Christopher Robin, World War Z, Quantum of Solace, and Monsters Ball. Before I hop into our discussion with Matt, a brief thank you to our sponsors. Jump Desktop is a high-performance and secure app that lets you virtually connect to your editing bay as if you were physically there. Keep all your assets in one place and connect to your powerful editing base from anywhere, Jump Desktop's high-performance remote desktop protocol lets you edit from any low-powered laptop. With end-to-end encryption, native support for macOS and Windows, and multi-monitor support, you can be productive from anywhere. Jump Desktop also has collaborative screen sharing for collaboration with your team. See what thousands of editors have been using to get their work done from across the world. Visit jumpdesktop.com cut to begin your free no limits 14-day trial today and to our partner, Boris FX. I've been using Boris Effects and Sapphire for more than 20 years, so they're not just a sponsor to me. I feel like they've been a partner in my cutting room for decades, helping me to deliver on the creative vision of my clients, directors, and producers. For all of us, our work is about bringing a creative idea to the screen, and for me, Boris Effects is one of the important tools that I use to do that. To see how they can help you on your latest project, head on over to borisfx.com and check out the Boris FX suite, which includes Sapphire, Continuum, Mocha Pro, Silhouette, and Optics, all in a low-cost monthly or annual subscription. If you want to read this interview with great visual support, you can go to either borisfx.com slash artofthecot, all one word, or borisfx.com slash AOTC. That site also has other great filmmaking content, so keep that bookmarked. And now, Oscar nominee Matt Chesse on editing A Man Called Otto. So this movie is based on a book. Did you read that and when did you read it?
1: I did read the book before we started filming. My wife usually gets to the source material before I do because I usually find out something's coming up. Uh, while I'm working on the last thing, because Mark Forrester, who I work with for many years, he tends to back things up against each other. So I'll say, "Oh, I think we're going to do this book of man called Ove," and my wife will jump on it and read it just prior to me reading it. And then uh, I read the book, then I watched the uh, Swedish language film, and then with my wife, and then uh, and then I read our screenplay just to kind of be on the same evolutionary track as the material. We've done book adaptations before. This is the first time we've done a remake of a movie where I feel like we were in such conjunction with the team who made the original adaptation. So our producers were a a Swedish company called SF Films, who used to be Svenska Films, who are really old, old Swedish company that did most of the Ingmar Bergman movies and signed Greta Garbo to her first contract. They've been around for a long time. They did a man called Ove. I knew we were backing into a garage where a lot of people very familiar with the source material were going to be. I tend to try to do research when I know what I'm coming up on. You know, I watched all the Bond films before we did Quantum of Solace. And, you know, what I mean? it's fun. It's fun to sort of task yourself in either the genre or the source material. So I read the book as soon as I could and sort of had the whole thing in my bloodstream before we started filming. And then you try to forget it. You try to store it all up and get all your moments and your feels and your beats and the things that you think are going to be special, either from the page or from the script or from the other film. And you kind of you have all these sort of benchmark expectations that you want the movie to hit. And then you put those away and you dive in with the material that's coming at you and you discover a whole lot of other things that you weren't expecting. And then sometimes I feel like you you try to guide the material back to what you thought it was going to be. You sort of try to build it because you have a, an earlier version of it in your mind that you made up that you're going for, or you let new things occur that had never happened before that are just intrinsic to this project. And between both those routes, I think you come to a happy place of getting the best of the material. You know what I mean?
0: I've talked to editors who say I don't want that in my head. And some people say, oh, of course, I read every single thing I can get. I, I do as much research as I can.
1: I think it's a personal thing. It's a subjective thing. I think it's whatever works for you. I personally don't like to go to the set. I mean, I like to visit set, but I don't like to be too close to the production because I feel like the world that we're given is bracketed off from the reality of the set, you know? So what's going on just outside of frame is not really our business. We're the super audience we're the first responders to the material. So I like to stay a little fresh of that because whatever struggles they have to get to to get the material in front of the camera, I don't really want to be there because it leaves me to be able to elevate the material without that toxicity leaching in. And then generally the director will come in and say, oh my God, this plays so much better than I thought it was going to. This was a terrible day or that day player has really let me down, but he's playing great. And I'm, you know, if you remain... Outside of that, you don't know that they weren't happy on the day. Then you can play to its strength and give it the blind taste test, and, and really, and, and which I think is a big part of our job in terms of absorbing the material or soaking in it. I think I, as a film fan and a literature fan and a pop culture fan, I like to do the homework because I don't mind having influences get into my work because I think generally whatever it is that's influencing you or that you're shooting for will probably wind up getting disguised and folded in. But if it helps you kind of get the signal and and hone in on where it's going to go, then it's fine because nobody's going to look at it and go, oh, he's copying this beat from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. You know, they're just going to feel like the scene works. It doesn't matter what's going on in the back of your mind that you're that you're pulling it towards something. So I like to immerse myself in that and be prepared. And it makes for stimulating conversations. Certainly the author of this book, Frederick Bachman, was a super engaging guy and really lovely to meet. And I was really glad that I'd read another one of his books so that I had done my homework and I had things to talk to him about. You know, That's part of the fun of the job is to make connections with people. And if you've done your homework, then you have genuine passion about all the little tributaries that come off of the material that gets to you, you know? I'm a fan of the homework and I like to be aspirational in my shooting for targets privately in the editing room. I like to have a bar to set, to calibrate, to kind of in the material to borrow a word from the Simpsons.
0: Tell me about the, your use of jump cuts and what do jump cuts do for you? What's the, the power of them or the value of them? And also do you have to use them early to get the audience used to them? Or could you do jump cuts at the end?
1: sometimes jump cuts are like you're suggesting are kind of a factor of compression of trying to get things down to a time and sometimes there are suggestions from people you know who are giving you notes like why don't we just go from there to there so sometimes there there are practical things i think it helps if you find a language if you're if you're going to employ jump cuts if you're going You know, fade to blacks or dissolves between scenes or you're going to do synaptic sort of brain crackly kind of, you know, associative editing. I think it's it's helpful to lay that pipe early and give people an idea of how what the language of the movie is, because if you start to employ them out of the blue in the fourth or fifth reel it doesn't seem like your film. So I think it's always good to do a little bit of gear changing. I think jump cuts are helpful in keeping people on their toes and giving people a language. Those are really helpful in being able to accelerate the story, accelerate the timeline. They're going to become necessary at some point. So I think if you can give a, a little bit of modern, edgy editing and a little bit of crackle to it early on, It allows you to have more flourish as you're going, because you can't just kind of whip that stuff out later. I think you could set up for people in the beginning of the movie. You could show them how to watch the movie and what to expect and how like flashbacks are going to occur. Or if you're pushing it on somebody's face and that's going to elicit a flashback or a time jump or whatever. If you open up with some of that stuff, you let people learn how they're going to go. In this film, particularly, I knew that this isn't about jump cuts, but I knew that we were going to want to go rhythmically a little slowly, certainly in the opening, because Otto's life is slow, the time passing in his house, his his memories, he's kind of stalled a little bit in the beginning of the film. And I knew that we weren't going to want to be rushy, pacey, cutty. Mark and I both tried to establish a languid feeling in the house so that when we came back to the environment where he was trying to commit suicide where he had control over things where it was his space where he'd been living with all of his memories that we could slow down that we could settle into that so if he stepped outside with the neighbors and he's being provoked to come out to the neighborhood and help them out some way or loan them a tool uh or engage with the outside world whenever he came back and closed his door we tried to stay off of the music and we tried to stay in a quietude and kind of a reflective feeling that suited how the memories were coming to him and kind of, I picked up on a a vibe in the character that I felt like he had auditory triggers, that he was, that, that things bugged him sonically, that were the cacophony of the world. When we got inside where he was able to shut things out and be in control of his space, we tried to make that very calm. In there because like, because that that was how he would have wanted it so you know the jump cuts i think i employed or the the more edgy editing was to be to represent the outside world and the pace that it goes at i wanted people to be able to be patient enough to go slowly through his world if we wanted to go slowly through his world and not set a comic clip you know you get a lot of notes about pacing and punching things up when you start sharing it with people but i think we really wanted to hold down the, the opening of the film so that we could get under his skin and feel like an older gentleman who's spending time by himself is not, we didn't want to crank it up in the front end and and pace it to that. Cause you can't stop that. You know, you can't slow down to that. So my daughter's taking a film class right now at, and she was telling me they were going to watch breathless today. And I was telling her that breathless, you know, was really a place where we all learned certainly the, The next generation, the raging bulls, you know, that era of filmmakers really learned to throw continuity out the window and do jump cuts and kind of just get to the next bit, you know, zap people into the the next moment that was important to get rid of the shoe leather, you know, and I think it's very, it's very liberating. So I think jump cuts are really helpful in, in not having to pay into the account of like, yes, they've started dinner, but do we need to go through a montage of them preparing the whole meal or can we just cut to the plate coming in? And so I, I think that that you know the, the, those things are very liberating and, and necessary to have in your pocket, and to sprinkle them throughout can keep up the gear changes that you have to make at some sometimes.
0: One of the first times I noticed the pace pickup was the backing up of the U-Haul. All of a sudden, much different pace of editing than the rest of what we'd seen to that point.
1: So I think that that's two things. It's partly the conscious thought of wanting the outside world to be more alive, more engaged, and more complicated, uh, more frenetic than what he's trying to protect inside his house. There was that in terms of, you know, inside world and outside world, interior world, exterior world. There's also a coverage thing. The way that Matthias Kronisberger, our DP, and Mark had shot the suicide prep that kind of bookends the parking, they did it very economically. Just a few setups, very deliberate and very static. And so I had to compose that in a certain way. And we took it kind of slow and we let it be kind of painterly and wide and locked off. And then the material that they shot on the day that they shot the outside parking scene, there was so many more setups, so much more material to go from. So just from trying to cover the material and get the most out of it and have all three of those actors doing comedy bits... You wind up having to jack around and like, well, that line's great from inside the car, although it makes no sense to be inside the car. That's where this beat goes down the best, you know, between Tommy and Otto. So I'm going to be on the front seat of the car. And then, you know, I want to show the taillight. Mark isn't generally a big fan of like, inserts or like detail shots. Like I'm I'm just going to cut to the taillight. Like he's, he does more wide coverage and then I get to pick through it and be where I want to be when, but I can usually be anywhere because he's got most of the things done in masters. So just by dint of the amount of coverage that they did in the car scene, I had a lot more cards in my deck to play with a lot more places to cut to. And there was two other POVs. It was not just auto, but it was like Marisol and Tommy. And you're setting up this initial relationship, you know, where Marisol and Otto share more in common than they think they do, because they're both trying to micromanage Tommy's parking and they think they know the best way to do it. And so you hear Marisol saying, you know, back, back, back. And Otto's hand is directing him as if he's the one who's talking. And so there was this there's a lot of opportunity to overlay their commonality by sort of cutting to auto and seeing Marisol or hearing Marisol, seeing Otto, cutting to Tommy, uh, having his signal jammed by both of them, you know? And so there was, it's a slapstick thing. It's a relationship thing. It's a performance thing. It's a number of angles offered thing. Parking and reparking a car is not the most hilarious setup. And so the more goofy funny bits and reactions and eye rolls and detail and punchiness you can have it makes that scene saucier funnier you get more of the dynamic between everybody and then he gets inside and shuts the door you kind of exhale and then you're in the house again and then he's back to his old pacing and so some of it intentional some of it practical some of it sort of uh what the scene needs and i think but i think also you feel that it's pacier because it comes right in between these two very quiet scenes because he's a little reluctant to commit suicide. He wants to do it. He, he wants the end goal, but approaching the noose and getting ready to do it, he's distracting himself. He's looking at books. He's you know, looking at pictures on the mantelpiece. He's, so there's a reluctance to it on either side of this other scene where he feels very forceful. He comes out of the house on a charge and he's giving directions and he's the general of that block and so it's like two different sides of him it's just sort of worked out nicely but that's why that scene feels pacier and i just think all the encounters with people are covered quite a bit more than the stuff of tom by himself tom's so good that you don't need that much coverage when he's by himself then when you step outside and you have all these other people there's a lot more engagement but he the stuff of him alone interacting with the cat it was almost partially covered because he nails it so quick they're sort of more economically shot if that makes sense
0: i had not thought of the really interesting idea of joining the characters by seeing tom and hearing marisol and in in the reverse it starts to create their partnership early in the film
1: I have worked with Mark for a really long time. And uh we do have a shorthand in terms of me going into the material and kind of his taste is my taste at this point. He'll say something really small to me. They recognize something in each other. They have an affinity, although it's a begrudging thing at first, but they they are they're both like slightly micromanaging and controlling, and they both sort of know what's they're a functional people. And Tommy is not. And so that there's a few scenes in a row right there where. That happens. and so when he when he mentioned that character thing to me, I just started looking for it. You know, you can build those things in. If somebody gives you the right size comb to go through stuff with, you can almost always find what they're looking for if they mention it if they seed it beforehand. So I think when I was cutting the scenes on the doorstep, he said something else really small, the scene where they they come over and introduce themselves, and she gives him the food and he tries to shut the door and she puts her foot in the way. I had cut it. And showed it to him the next day because he was concerned about some coverage, and wanted to make sure an angle worked. So I bashed something together. And his first look at my first version of that scene, I had really played a lot to Tommy because he was quite doing some funny stuff. And he said, I think you should try to stay with auto looking at Marisol because Tommy is the sidebar to, he's never seen anybody quite like this person before. And so, I went back and honed it a lot, and and removed a lot of the interplay between Otto and Tommy, and just sort of made him a distraction. But Otto's focus was very on Marisol, and sort of like looking at her like an animal in a zoo. Like I'm not exactly I've never come across this species before, and it really it really helped the scene when I played it back for him. He was like, "Yeah, that's that's great," and that's that's kind of the way he directs me. Is he'll it's sort of like um, Jedi mind tricks, like very small. And I think he works with the actors the same way. Just small indicators, and you sort of pick up on it. He he can be very, you know, a man of few words, but they're well chosen. and And I pay attention. If he gives me that kind of a an instruction, I can usually pull it off. So I start. I so I went back in and and made sure that that was what was coming across. And it it unlocked a lot of a lot of really cool things because I started looking at the scene slightly differently and watching her when you might have wanted to be on Otto or you might have wanted to be on Tommy. I was like, I watched I watched Marisol from Otto's POV, you know. But it helps when you're in the cutting room putting things together to have just any kind of input, just or goal or just a note of like, come at it from this angle. It just, it's just great because we you you would be can come quite overwhelmed with all of the options. And when somebody gives you a pick to go at things with that has a certain size to it, it makes it easier to find the nuggets, you know.
0: Sometimes the director will give you a note on one scene and that unlocks or informs a lot of other scenes the same thing.
1: I find notes fun, and I find the challenge of trying to take another swing at things based on somebody's first impression of it, especially directors. I think it's really fun and really challenging to go back in and play up to what somebody else's notion of what what it is is. And Mark is very generous in the space that he gives me to do my version, and then, you know, he's very subtle in the way that he wants it adjusted and it just can really make things better to take them seriously and not push against them but to really wait it with that sort of challenge sometimes he'll just say you know make it like this or make it more like that or make it colder or make it slower or make it you know cooler the little the littlest thing can set you off on a true essence of the scene
0: take the note as a creative challenge not a complaint
1: exactly take the note as a creative challenge not as a complaint i think is a great piece of advice and a great sort of bylaw
0: Let's talk about flashbacks. Um tell me about how you dealt with them. There's a bunch of flashbacks in the movie.
1: Flashbacks are kind of like a transition and you know they're they're kind of like a staple between scenes and and how do you get from reality to, you know, the flashback without losing people and I think there was a lot of discussion early on some people reading the script were concerned about the flashbacks because Mark's intention was to mix things up and shoot it in such a way that we could sometimes have the flashback where Tom's son Truman was playing Otto and maybe have Sonia, the wife, in both places. Maybe she's in Otto's current living room or car, and then she's also in the um restaurant where they're having their first date. So what they gathered were more options. It wasn't really decided on. It was like there were more places to kind of synaptically go between the past and the present and Otto's participation in it. And as we tried to cut the things together, we realized that it felt kind of strange to have Tom in the scene with Sonia because she wasn't aging. And her timeline really belonged with young Otto. And to have him have him interrupt that wholesale in the same frame felt weird. But it was really good for the flashbacks to have him murmuring some of the dialogue or providing some of the lines that Truman was going to speak and to participate in the flashbacks in a way from the here and now. So I had a lot of options. I had a lot of ability to slip things around till it felt right. I knew from reading the script initially that there were a lot of flashbacks, which can be challenging. And uh, depending on the way that they're covered and the way that they're supplied to you, they can be more you know, successful or unsuccessful to a lesser or greater degree. So I was up for this. I was paying attention, but I think that they really did a good job on set supplying me with uh, the grease to kind of lube these things up. So in the first one, which is an important one because it lets you know these flashbacks are going to be happening, uh, there was a shot of Tom sitting in the chair. And he's flipped through the book and it's just a kind of a slow close up on him in the chair. We sort of hear them come into the room and put down the boxes and they're discussing the bookshelf that he's going to build her because she's got so many books. And when I watched it, Mark had them had the other actors entering the room and doing their their actions at the other end of the set. And Tom was just watching them. And I heard their vocals in production. I heard them across the room enter it just felt like the flashback was already going on. Like I didn't have to do anything in this daily. He just was, he was having the flashback and you were watching him have the flashback. And because the actors were in there moving the stuff around at a distance, and I felt sort of ghostly the way they were picking up on the mic. I was like, well, this is the first beat of the flashback. I'm going to take this all the way till he Truman says, you know, well, how many more books do you have? And she's like, Five more boxes. And he's like, Well, and then Tom mutters to himself his line that we were supplying as well. He says, I'll just build you another bookshelf. And then you hear Truman echo him in the background. Well, I'll just have to build you another bookshelf, as if he's been through this memory many times. He's played this memory back to himself. It's a sweet spot. It's a pleasant place. And he likes to replay it and he knows his part. So he says his line, which triggers Truman's line. And just in the daily, I was like, Well, that's we're in. You know, I know exactly what's happening by watching Tom and hearing those voices. I don't even need to cut away. So I stayed with that. You know that old rule about, you know, don't cut till you need to. I didn't need to cut for a while. We purposefully kept young young Otto played by Truman Hanks out of the out of that scene. We don't we see his figure reflected in the TV, but I only cut to the close-up of of Sonia because I wasn't ready I wasn't ready to break Otto out of that scene yet. So I just stayed on her and Tom and left Truman as a voice and a shape in the background and kind of bonded Tom with Sonia. And then in the next flashback, he goes to bed and he ha- he drifts off in his sleep. That's the first time we cut to Truman. So he was, he was we sort of see him laying in bed asleep and then we see his hand reach for her hand and it's Tom's hand reaching for Rachel's hand. And then we cut to Truman's face in bed where Tom used to be and then we cut back to their hands and it's Truman's hand holding Rachel's hand. So we're basically introducing the audience to young Otto as an avatar for old Otto by doing a sort of sleight of hand. That's him in bed. That's clearly his wife's hand. So if he's holding her hand, then this is what he looks like in the past because he's gone back in time. And then we see their young hands holding hands together. So now we're in the past. And and then, we, then I cut to the reflection in the picture frame, and we see him lying in bed alone, and we're reminded that he's drifted off. And so it's sort of a dance of turning over these cards one at a time to take the audience by the hand, introduce them to these players, and show them how this reverie is is drifting over him. And then he wakes up slightly, and then you realize he's, it's bittersweet, you know, you realize he's he's alone, and he grasps for her hand, it's not there. And then he looks back out the window and I I said to my assistant, you know, is there a way that we can, can we take what's outside the window and replace it with something? Is that possible? And there was a couple of setups where I think the light had changed in the daytime when they started at, at dawn, they started the shot in the morning and then the sun came up and it started coming in the window. So the later takes, they had put a green screen up. So I had a green screen outside his bedroom window and I was like, what can we put in there? So we experimented around with with like the train moving and we we played around with that window as a transition device for the flashback. And then my sound designer, when we, when we got it around to the mix stage, I cut from the view outside his window, which has changed from his bed. It kind of racks from him in bed to the window. And we see that what's outside the window is different now because I had the ability to do that because I had that green screen there and some of the takes. And then the next shot is they hold an X-ray up at the army base where he's getting his uh, physical and he gets rejected. So they're holding this x-ray of his heart up in the window. And the window is very reminiscent of the window from the bedroom. So my sound designer put some army barracks kind of a call like one, two, err, uh, err, uh, like sort of army, army vocal outside the window. So the first time we're in the bedroom and he looks out the window, we kind of hear trash cans and there's kind of some you know mourning in the street sounds. And then the next time it's it's particularly, it pulls your ear and it sounds like the army. And then we cut to the window in the army barracks, we've changed locations and he's holding up the x-ray. And so part of it was happenstance and part of it was intentional. They definitely framed the windows at the army barracks for him to hold the X-ray up against, they definitely had a, a a similar sympathetic feel to the windows in his bedroom. But the fact that Brad Besser, my visual effects editor, and I had worked up this gag where we could do what we wanted outside the window, added another level to it. Then we put some sound on it and it became this really fluid, dreamy, echoey, drifty kind of a thing that, you know, really took the sting out of anybody being dislocated by like when the flashback kicked in, you know? So it's, it's like most things in good, in good editing, there are plans and then there's inspiration and happy accidents. And then there's the contribution of a really tasteful, creative ally who's working with you. And the whole thing kind of just comes together. So I, I think that because there have been some reservations about getting lost in the flashbacks and trying some of the things Mark wanted to try, with having you know sort of double casting Tom and Truman both in the same flashback, I think we were all kind of on point to make sure that that stuff was very smooth and didn't bump and was kind of slightly magical and graceful. Because of that intention, because somebody raised their hand early on and said, I don't get what we're doing here, we made sure that you would. There's only one flashback that is the result of taking something out. There's a scene where he's kicking people out of his house and rejecting the idea of taking the cat on, and he shuts the door, and he turns around and is drawn into a flashback about when he proposes marriage. And initially, that was something else, and we lost a scene for length and had to make up a transition triggered by the kind of coats and the memory of Sonia. So I had to kind of look at my other transitions and look at my other flashbacks and say, now that we've got this ripple and we've taken the scene out, what can I do that feels intentional that it keeps up this quality of standard of, of flashbacks? And so we, we kind of winged that, borrowed a line from later in the scene and put it across the coats so that the coats were being associated with uh, Sonia. Once you get in the groove of it, then you have to kind of make sure that they're all equally tasty. That was only had to do on the fly. And I think it works, but it's not it sticks out to me a little bit because it's not quite as graceful as the more uh, plotted ones, because it was a a result of some editing and some rippling of scenes. Yeah, so I worked on one film where uh, it was like a Nicholas Sparks movie. So there was a lot of uh, it was double casting of a couple when they were young and fell in love and when they kind of meet in later life. But we showed the movie to people. They were like, why are there two characters named Dawson in this movie? That's not good. Like, there's not that's, that, that's dawson There's only one. That that's him. The past. Uh, so they they almost thought there were like parallel timelines. Like the movie, it had, had a stroke, and there was like two, you know, two two timelines with the same with 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 two different. It's yeah, it's
0: the exactly. Multiverse.
1: Early, mul- early, mul- <laughs> unintentional multiverse. uh And that, yeah, you know, you're in trouble when when somebody asks you, "Why are there two characters named Otto in the same film?" No, no, no. There's only one of on them. Uh, the way that that scene plays out with the handoff from Tom stepping nimbly through it, with the handoff from Tom to Truman, it's elegant and I hope emotionally impactful. But it's also a provocation and a and a handhold for the audience of like we're gonna I'm gonna walk you through this, and by the time we get into the flashback. You're going to understand exactly who that was, which is why I went back to the after I'd introduced Truman and swapped their hands out for young Otto's hand and young Sonia's hand on the bed. I went back to the reflection on the wall in the glass to show that Otto was still lying in bed alone, you know, to take you back to original. Like, see, these. this is this meets this and this, but that's still going on over here. And so you sort of it's spoon feeding them so people don't get lost. It's setting up a language for going into other flashbacks, it's satisfying the producer's anxiousness about people getting lost and hopefully doing all that with grace so that it feels unclunky for those who are getting it. Because there's there's nothing worse than covering a note or covering a suspicion, a hunch that people aren't going to follow. And then other people who did get it right away are like, yeah, obviously, you know, I knew I knew where I was. It's like there's a couple of cuts in um, Gangs of New York that I always bring up with my uh, editing students when I'm talking where they meet in the middle of the movie for this big brawl in the street and they've got sticks and torches and whatever. And they're going to go at it. And when the guys show up in the street, it cuts to, you know, mirrored shots of them from earlier in the movie, younger, kind of going, like, don't miss this. Like, this is that guy. And you're like, if you're paying attention to watching the movie, you're like, why are you doing that? I don't need. I didn't need to have that flash frame in there to remind me. I, I'm, I'm, watching, and so I think that's what you want to avoid. Is the is uh uncalled something that feels uncalled for or that really sticks out? Because you walk, you walk a line with with wanting to keep everybody on board, but not wanting to insult anybody or you know oversimplify things. And I think we've experimented along the way as filmmakers, uh, both Mark and I, of. Uh, Uh, with simplifying or oversimplifying or remaining uh, willfully obtuse and letting people not not explaining things. And there's benefits and, and deficits to both those things. It's not always great to leave people in the dark or leave them guessing or assume that they get things. As we've gotten more mature as filmmakers, I think we've become a little more sensitive to doing all those things gracefully and not assuming that everybody gets it or that people like to be left in the dark.
0: Let's talk about reaction shots and when not to be on the speaker. Um, I'd love to discuss the example of the Swedish bakery scene. How are you deciding what to play on Otto and what to play on Marisol?
1: I remember on finding Neverland, uh, Richard Gladstein, who was our producer, who was a Miramax uh, first wave guy, had been you know done Cider House Rules and a lot of a lot of great films, and he was kind of our. Our Miramax minder, he was our our creative producer, who was like very very much in the dugout with us, and when was more seasoned than, than Mark and I at that point. And so I was particularly interested in his feedback because he was, you know, it is interesting to get different perspectives from different uh, agendas and different experiences. I remember him saying to me during a a dinner scene, I think it was a dinner party scene with the little kids and Johnny Depp, and he said, you know, you don't always have to be. I'm the person that's talking, you know, because I was you know, I was kind of being very ping-pongy, it was very, you know, back and forth. And so I was sort of like, but it it hadn't really occurred to me at that point, because I hadn't done that many films, that maybe I did want to lean into some reactions a little bit more and and let things drop there. And so I I experimented on that movie with savoring that, looking for places to let something soak in or writing a reaction shot or not not doing what's expected. It's a delicate balance, I guess of being in the sweet spot of what the scene needs and kind of what's satisfying them. Obstensively, I'd say that that's Otto's scene because it's Otto's memories. it's it's the warmest that he's been and the plosive. Uh, to her, he really kind of—it's almost like he had gone there for some confessional. He really—he sets it up. He takes her to a place that's very personal to him, and he is ready to chat. And so, watching that stuff come out of him was kind of the most beckoning thing when I'm going to the dailies and watching Tom do that naturally because he's defrosting in a way right in front of us. Like that's the most his guards down in the whole in almost the whole movie, because his power windows go back up by the end of the scene. He's already like like like, we got to go. It's two o'clock and he kind of locks her out again because she kind of oversteps. And so I got to say, it's not hard to know when you want to cut to Mariana because she's such a that character, that actress. So, so well suited just fit her like a glove. And so she's listening to Tom as we're listening to Tom. And so to go through her dailies, like the kindness, the empathy, the engagement, she's prodding him and giving him just enough, you know, she's not gonna spook the horse. She's just the character is giving, you know, Marisol's giving Otto just enough to keep him going without letting him realize that he's kind of really sharing himself. And uh and she's very gentle. And so I go through all the dailies on on one character and and I try to figure out where I want to be when based on that. And then I look at the other character. I'm like, oh gosh, there's a stack up here. Like I want to be in both places. I can't do a split screen, but you know, I find all of her warmest stuff. And so I think when you are done collecting the auto dialogue, the auto delivery, and you go back to Marisol, you see her listening to a line that you would have assumed you'd want to be on him for, but you see her taking it in, in a way That's exactly how you want to feel when you're looking at him saying the line. You're like, well, I I just as well be served by being on her intaking it as being on him outputting it, you know. And sometimes either it's a performance thing or a script thing, something might be a little too sweet if you let the actor say it. Whereas if you let somebody else absorb the line rather than saying the actor say the line, it might make something feel a little more natural and less expositional. It's like you're eavesdropping, you know, and so you're watching it with two minds because you're like am I am I the speaker or am I the observer and and sometimes it's just a it's a great tool if you've got a take where you're like I really like his delivery up to this point and then I really love his delivery from this other take but if I go to her and let him speak the line over her I kind of get the best of both worlds I'm 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 watching her warm absorption of it but I'm also getting his best read without having to feel like I cut away from that take at a weird time. So it's sort of like, again, it's sort of a prestidigitation. It's kind of a dance. It's like you're making soup and you're testing it. You know, it's a little, a little salty, a little, you know, a little sweet, a little sour, a little, you know, in your, you're sifting those things. And, And I just felt like she's almost a silent partner in that scene, but she's so giving and she's so great that when I would watch her daily. I would think, well, that's what I would want to be getting back from somebody if I was talking to them. That would make me want to keep going. Like, I feel like she's just a green light. And so it's a pretty organic thing for me. I, I, I'm i a people person, and I like to watch, and I like to listen, and I like to talk. And so I'm t- sort of having the ultimate cafe experience right there, being able to make it go, make it go as good as it can, you know, because I'm just really, I was really fond of both those performances. So it it made it pretty easy.
0: But it really sounds like you were really, uh, you know, with a great performance, you were choosing the actual moment of her listening to a specific line.
1: With these particular actors, it was a real smorgasbord. I mean, they were both so, so on and in it the whole time. And I think the two of them really locked in. So. It was really just a response thing of sort of like going through a smorgasbord line and picking all the things that feel appealing and going back for the things that you want to double up on. Like nobody else is ever going to go in and watch this stuff uncut after I go in there. Probably not even the directors. It's is probably like the one time somebody's going to sit through eight or 10 takes of Mariano Trevino listening to Tom lay down this scene. So I'm watching it sort of drift by me. But when the thing lines up where he's saying a line and she's absorbing it, it's a combo of kind of like what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing. And when it tugs a little bit or breaks a little bit or feels like really organic, like that only happened in that one take. There's something really, she turned her head or she bit her lip, or there's just something very fond or whatever the emotion you're going through but in that particular scene it was like when things lined up you just kind of feel it like you hear it and you see it and you're like oh that was sort of in sync I don't even need to borrow Tom's line read from another take I could just I just want to be right here because all the stars kind of align for you you know in in a certain way I I that's a movie moment that's like a keeper like I want that's that's where I want to be and like there's a scene where he wakes up in the hospital and he's had the heart attack and she is at his bedside and there was just one take where they were in a medium and she was just he had just woken up and she was like, oh, like, and she sort of held his hand. There was just this fondness there that wasn't in any other take. And it, I didn't even need to be right there at that moment. I could have been on either one of their close ups or I could have been you know, wide or on the other side of the bed. But it's like when that stuff goes by and 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 you know that if you don't scoop it out it's not necessary but it's like that's got to be in there like that was real that really touched me that moved me and i think that more than anything else that's what i am guided by when i'm editing is trying to shepherd all of the most poignant moments or all of the most you know real feeling moments of and sometimes it's just it's an angle it's the lineup it's the body language it's the which take it occurs on they've done it 3 times and they're in a groove or whatever it is but you just it, that beat goes by in that take. And you're like, ah, oh, I gotta use that. That's just, you know, and, it, and it, it speaks it speaks to you. And if you line enough of those things up, especially, I feel like the moments that feel like one-offs, like when an actor says something in a way that is real to life, but is unexpected, or like, that was an interesting read. like the, And she only said it that way once. And that felt really off the cuff. If I put those in and protect all those beats, Then it just makes everything else feel more real because that had to be real. That was just so organic. And so I just, I think it's, it's really helps the material if you watch for all that stuff, the one, the one-off stuff and the moment when they're, when they're right there, that is not going to occur again, you know, that nobody's going to go back for it's not mentioned in a script. It's not a beat or a, a moment that is outlined, but you catch it and you're like, oh my God, that was amazing. And you go back to it and you're like, oh, I got to protect that. And I think that is probably what drives me in the first cut going through the dailies is, is collecting all that stardust. It's an honor and it's a you're charged with that. It's you're the only one who's going to go down to that mine again and 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 pull that stuff up. And so your custodial duty and you're sort of you're charged with this to deliver that stuff, to bring back the gold and and at least if not put it all on screen, at least know where it is so you can file it away and bring it back if you need to make things warm or colder or whatever, whatever the I had. A, I worked on a film where they decided that the female character had been cut too coldly in the beginning of the movie, although she was supposed to be cold. And that that she had resting bitch face. And so I had to go back through the movie and like warm her up and make sure that in this certain section she wasn't coming off too 2D. Although I really felt the actress would have been fine with with how I had cut her. The two female producers I was working with were like, that that's she's too, she's too, she's not likable enough. And I'm like, Well, she's not, she doesn't she doesn't like him right here, you know? So so some sometimes you're your instinct is is not as box office friendly you know and you you're going for truth
0: did your choice of performance change when you saw the entire film in context the best performance is not necessarily the best performance that makes a smooth arc there's
1: always a day of reckoning when when you put things all together and you watch them on a run uh you know both both in performance and also in sort of length and breadth of scenes sometimes if you If you cut your dailies every day, you make everything a meal, you know, main course, and then you put it all together, and you're like, "Oh, this is actually tapas, or this was just the salad, you know, or this was an appetizer." Like, I didn't need to make a meal out of this, or maybe this just this whole thing, maybe this whole thing is just be a montage rather than a main course, because a lot of times the coverage and the the shooting on the day doesn't necessarily belie what the scene needs to be. You can wind up with a lot more material than the movie really wants in the end just because they're at a remote location they're not going to be able to do another company move that day so they're just why, why not shoot it out so they just wind up spending all the whole day on one scene and in the end it could just be a couple of cuts you know but you've got this kind of embarrassment of riches so so I think a lot of those notions of looking at the thing as a whole happen on a lot of levels when you put the whole thing together and As Mark and I have progressed in our relationship, our our collaboration, I used to wait and try to cut everything linearly as much as I could. I would go through the material as we got it every day, but I sort of started cutting the movie at the beginning of the movie and worked towards the end and didn't worry that I had an assembly when he wrapped. We just used to not work that way. We used to just go to let the thing a crew, and he would he would be patient enough to let me sort of cut linearly, which I thought was a great way to go because then the movie really tells you what it wants in each scene, and it's it's much clearer than sort of Frankensteining together with all these scenes and realizing that you're three out. You know ne- you never get you never get a three-hour cut that you scratch your head at how to tighten it. If you're cutting linearly, you sort of get to the end of the movie right when you want to get to the end of the movie because you know you're laying paving stones. The calendars have gotten tighter, and the expectations and the turnaround and needing to share. We, I do do much more of an assembly that's ready when, when he gets done with the shoot. So I have a little bit of a jump on taking out those rough edges and compressing things and modulating, you know, performances. Also, in the last couple of films, we've had moments where Mark wanted to see before he finished filming as much of the movie as he could, so that he could figure out when and where like flashbacks occur or Mark wanted me to assemble the whole thing and record an actress reading Helen's lines and put, place them as they were supposed to be placed in the movie and basically create placeholders and cards and kind of audio for all of her beats. There would be no need for reshoots. He, he basically got his money's worth by reverse engineering her presence in the movie and realizing in an assembly form with another actress reading her dialogue and me kind of cutting mocked up all of her scenes before she got there it really worked like a glove we just we we got we nailed it in terms of stepping back and modulating a performance or sort of looking at the whole thing and needing to dial things in in the wider sense i would say in this movie because tom is so good he was doing a lot of that bracketing and notching of auto warming up for us he knew where Otto was at, no matter where we were in the shoot, no matter what day we were on, whether he was shooting on the porch on the practical street or whether he was shooting on the interior on a stage, he knew what he had just done in the previous scene in terms of screen time. And he knew you know, where Otto was at. A lot of that guesswork is gone because he is he's done the adjusting. Um, that said, I'd say if he had a tendency to do anything that I needed to work with or into, it was that he has a natural ability to be very charming and very sweet and very warm. I had to hold on to the grumpy as long as I could, because sometimes I don't think that he could ever be too grumpy for too long in this movie. Another one of those things that get in your ear, when the author Frederick Backman visited the set in Pittsburgh, he said to Mark, somebody somebody said something about, it's such a beautiful story, and to watch Otto go through this transition and come to life and and go through this his art Otto's arc and Frederick said Otto never changes everybody else changes Otto the same through the whole movie he doesn't he's always that guy he doesn't get any warmer and he doesn't get any colder he's just Otto and Mark told me that Frederick Backman had said that and I took that to heart I was like I'm not going to let him you know, I'm not going to let him get too warm and fuzzy or I'm not going to watch. The, I don't think Mark ever planned for him to have one moment of an epiphany. You know, it was more just like a let him be auto and let us discover who he is. But he knows who he is. I held on to that taciturn nature as much as I could and fought against Tom Hanks's natural charm to hold off and keep auto auto. Because it's I think a, a lot of the reaction of the movie has been people being able to accept or not accept Tom Hanks in a role where he's suicidal and grumpy and well, that's why he wanted to do it. And I think that's one of the discoveries of the movie is to see him withhold, you know, and to see him not try to charm us and to see him not give a shit what anybody thinks and about this character. And, and, uh, and so I, it was fun to do that bracketing, but I, I did have to keep an eye on holding him in place and letting Otto be Otto as long as I could by the time we showed it by the time we were done with what you would call the director's cut we had worked all that out
0: when did you start bolting scenes together on this movie i know you've said that in the past you've tried to like do it
1: linearly i love to get things flowing um it really helps with adding music and spotting the movie um i'm a very presentational person like i like to spend a lot of time fine cutting and making things right i don't really do a rough cut or an assembly and just kind of say, well, it's going to be something like this. You know, I li- I really like to take the time like before I show it to Mark, I want it to be to everything to be in place and as much of the guesswork out of it as possible. And in turn, he's the same way before he presents our cut. He really likes to, you know, get all the green screen out and just take it as far. He basically wants to have no caveats. He wants the movie to just sing its song and say, I don't have any problems with this. This is my version. I don't need another month. And then we'll begin the process of you know everybody taking a swing at it but when i'm getting it ready for him i'm very much fine cutting the whole time so i will build reels that are empty of scenes that just have you know whole card holders that say what goes where and i'll just start adding the scenes in as i get them cut and eventually i'll have three or four scenes in a row that are kind of shaking hands with each other and then i'll work on I, I start stapling them together kind of as soon as I can. I kind of I kind of build ghost reels and then I just drop the scenes in to the ghost reels and they, they hang there it, until they meet the scene before and after. And it helps me for sort of bookkeeping and remembering where everything goes. But it's also just a, a way to get to an assembly quicker because uh, I find if I keep everything in bins for too long, I kind of I go back to it and I forget which version is the one I want. You know, I sort of. You know, I'll 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 lose my way. So when I feel when I feel like a scene's good and as good as I can get it, and I banged on as much as I can, I'll put it into this ghost reel, which eventually just evolves into being a full reel. So I'm stapling together as as we go. I love watching movies, and so I try to watch my movie as soon as I can. That's the whole joy of the job is that you get the first peak. So I'm 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 putting music on it, and I'm getting my assistants to get the green screen out and give it back to me. And I'm getting my sound guys to do sound along the way. And, and I'm, and I'm, you know, putting in, I I hold back on score, but other, otherwise I'm, I'm trying to pimp it as much as I can.
0: How do you approach a blank timeline? Are you a select real guy? Do you cut out of the bins, you know, from the frame view or whatever?
1: I feel like it's really hard for me to not start snipping and sub clipping from the first time i watched the dailies because i'm afraid that i'm going to forget where i liked something so i i wish that we still were in the practice of screening dailies with the director and letting the whole clip play in a room full of people at the end of the day and just feeling a room watch a scene and letting it go on as long as it can in a, its pure form i find that when i'm alone i get pretty snippy and i start subclipping. i'm definitely a highlights reel kind of a guy. I have my assistants cut me uh dialogue strings per line. I'll have them do that in the background as I go because I find it's really helpful to have that as a reference when you get stuck for time or when you get notes and you need to change things, or if a line's bugging you. If you just have them all, you know, laid up, you could just listen to everything, every line in a row. And but I generally pull subclips and then I just write something very self-referential to myself, like you know, great smile or amazing, natural, you know, very natural, or, you know, use this or, you know, like, uh, he blinks or just something very obtuse that anybody else who went into my bin would be like, what's with these comments? I don't understand. But I it's a fight like a filing system. And I will remember what it, what my knee jerk thing was why I sub that and so I have a kind of a a crazy bin full of little bits that I like to keep myself from getting into that blank timeline feeling I generally will start two sequences of the same scene at the same time. I don't get stuck on the perfect one I'll be like if I come to a crossroads like I could go this way or I could go that way, I can't decide I'll just make up another sequence and sort of start it start it going in another direction and there's a painful thing about decision making you feel like you're drowning kittens you know so I sort to let something go if I I'll have a, an A sequence and a B sequence, and then I'll remind myself, you know, also sort of remind myself after I'm done with the A sequence. I'll go back and look at the B sequence to see if there's anything that I want to graft onto it. And I, I often revisit my, my bins along the way of stuff that I've pulled to make sure that I, you know, didn't, didn't not go back to something great. You know, because there's so especially in a movie like this, with Tom Hanks and, you know, these performances, there's so there's so many great great reads and you know you can't get it all in but i i try to i try to keep challenging myself and going back and and revisiting things um but yeah i i don't one thing i do to keep the flow going in the beginning when the when i have an empty timeline is i play score under my dailies so that i'll put music on something from you know for the right that's sort of the right tone for the scene or kind of what potentially might be the music that i might put on there and I'll just play it on a loop, usually just one piece that I, that I, that I like, and it makes everything sort of feel like part of a piece. Like it kind of makes, it makes everything feel like it's already in a movie. And so it'll, it'll, it's sort of a, it's sort of like a, 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 car, a magic carpet that kind of keeps everything moving for me. And, 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 and I, and it, and it makes it all feel no matter how many, you know, dailies or angles or setups if I've got the same piece of music playing underneath the whole time it makes them feel more cohesive and it kind of puts me in a little bit of a of an intake trance you know and it and and it makes it feel like you're you're movie watching so I do I do I do that to keep to keep the um the blank page thing from from haunting me or being intimidating I kind of uh I sort of pretend pretend it's already a movie that's playing as as I'm getting started
0: got it And so you've got all these sub clips in a bin these great little moments this gold that you've you've uh, mined do you use those sub clips to start cutting the is your edit from the sub clips
1: well the sub clips you know you have to you have to uh you have to mark back into the to I, i don't cut with the sub clips i just use them as a as a as a marker to get back to the daily like i'll just yeah, I just I just match I just I I watch I I go back and watch the stuff that I've pulled and if I like it I just match frame to the beginning of that clip and cut it in from the daily so that I'm not using subclips because they'll lock you out of stuff. You get to the end of a sub. Yeah. So I I just kind of use them as placeholders. I found that when I made long strings of that stuff, it 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 can be hard to it can be hard to separate out the stuff that you want to use if they're all connected and you're watching the scene. Like you're sort of watching a string of clips, it 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 can become distracting or hard to choose. I've 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 decided to keep them separated now instead of putting them all in a in a big time in ton of a timeline and watching them because it it I would get lost in it. You know, there was like too many. It was like an o- an ocean of great options, and I and I would ha- have a hard time selecting. So I try to. I I try to, uh, you know, isolate them by making them subclips and just having a, a sort of a trigger phrase in a comments bin. I'm very into comments and notes. I have both comments and notes going in my in my uh, my poll bins so I can so I can sort of talk to myself. You know. Yeah, yeah, I, I do subclips in a text view because I I. You know, vi- vi- visually, I I know what the I, I know what the visual was. I'm I'm more of like a it's more of a word thing. You know, I'm more of I'm more of like a talking to myself in a sub in a subtextual way in my subclips bin where I'm having a dialogue with sort of my my impressions my first my first impression of something as I'm going through it. You know, sort of saving things and it's sort of if you start cutting right away if you start pulling subclips and sort of noting things and breaking things down, it 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 get it gets you into a pattern where you really go, do go through all the daily and you really do sort of you know sa- savor everything and pull everything off to the side and it's it can be exhausting to turn around and look at the bin you've created and be like oh, wow this is a mountain of a mountain of stuff but I also use color I I use I color the clips you know like I'll say green or yellow or red or you know like if if I'm really if I'm really for something and it's just a way of winnowing it down because I'm. I'm pretty meticulous about performance and I'm pretty meticulous about, you know, the, 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 the best read and the right read and the kind of gold, gold read. And so I, I really, I try to, I try to rate that stuff and, and say, you know, as, as I come across it, I try to highlight it, and put it to the side and say, you know, I've got to, I've got to put this in, I've got to use this. This is really, this has to be seen. You know, I think that like when they do those Borat movies, they do like a A joke, B joke, C joke thing, and then and then at some point they just go. All the C jokes have to go, and you know. And so it's sort of like that. Like I try to I try to go sort of an A an A read, a B read, a C read, and or vibes. You know, maybe it's like a you know a happier, sadder, or or a tougher or a, a crueler or whatever. And I'll and I'll 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 note those so I can keep them keep them you know apart like. Uh, you know I, you, you you see one beat go by you see one reaction and you're like oh i really like that and then every time you come to that reaction in another take you're like is that as good as the one i had before so there's sort of like a it's sort of a it's sort of a crazy making uh w- winnowing down but i'm really my whole goal is just to like i said sort of always always be at the right place at the right time with the best read and so i'm i'm sort of you know mm-hmm would you know would feeding everything into the wood chipper and then just trying to collect all the all the gold you know yeah the sub clips would be limit would be limiting in there and it's really just a, it's really just a notation a notation device you know it's for, for 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 bookkeeping and i'll once i sort of lock in on a on a take or a or a or a run of of performance or a place i want to be i'll i'll yeah i, I leave i leave those sub clips behind they're really just a way to to sort of, they're like bookmarkers. You know, I, I've tried to do, I tried to do the locators, but I, I just find loc- locators just slow, slow me down. I'd rather, I'd rather have sort of, it's almost like a deck of cards, you know, and you sort of fan everything out, and you're like, oh, Jack, King, Queen, Ace, you know, like I see all the, all the things that I have to, that I have to, you know, colors that I have to paint with.
0: When you are looking at other editors' work, how do you judge them for uh, awards consideration? What, do you, what are you looking at? That draws your eye and goes oh, that guy gets the oscar not in my choice
1: um i think i think the more that i can get lost in a movie it, for me personally is a good sign because as you said before you tend to watch things critically as an editor and would i have done that would i have not done that or though that was an interesting choice or i wonder what else they had to work with then you sort of you know you sort of you could be you know pretty picky and pretty critical and pretty editorial in the way that you're watching the movie. And I find that when I can get really lost in a film and forget about the filmmaking process and the fact that I participated in it and just take the ride on the film, uh, that's something. Also, I think that with modern editing and modern films, uh, I tend to not love the super nap super nat- When when naturalism is done well, like uh, what was the help me out here? What was the Maggie Gyllenhaal movie that she directed with Olivia Coleman, um, the Lost Daughter, the Good Daughter? So that movie, when I was watching it, I loved the rhythm of it, and I loved the time slip of it, and I loved the way that it it handled that style, which doesn't always work for me, but is a very modern thing where you just sort of like things are drifting in and out and you're hearing a little bit of this scene and that scene, you've got the same, act- it's two different actresses playing the same person at two different times. And th- this, this scene in the present is influencing this scene in the past. And I can get really bugged by that not being done well. And when it's done really well and I had, and I'm envious of it or I'm like, Ooh, I, you know, that was, that's, that's a tricky thing that normally bugs me. And this is really, this is really like, like, organic and feels very called for. And it's not I know it's not easy to have a director say, I want this to just kind of flow and just kind of be loose in time. And we're kind of going back and forth. And uh I think Alfonso Cancalvez edited that film. And I just remember watching it and really buying it and really getting lost in it, although it was a lot of editing. It felt very organic and very called for. So when I when I notice myself not noticing the editing that I would normally be noticing, I think that's a good thing. Um uh, that, that, that So you're an an
0: invisible artist kind yeah. of
1: guy. Invisible Yeah, artists. or or just yeah, I think I just I look for things that I admire or I think, wow, uh that that must have been t- tricky. Like I remember seeing Memento and thinking, wow, I can't imagine. I mean, to have had to cut Memento and I really wanted Dodie Dorn to win the Oscar because I just thought that was that, you know, that was that was mind mind bending. And so I think that that. Oh, well, I mean, a perfect example this year when you watch it, everything, everywhere, all at once. I mean, I mean, you just like, come on, like wh- that, 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 that just kicked ass on all levels. And the editing had to be you know so challenging and the timeline and the and the just the wackiness and the slapstick and the action and the and the characters, and yet it had so much soul and had so much to say about parenting and about love and about letting people go and you know I, I just thought it was such a profound movie but it was wrapped up in these you know hot dog fingers I was like so I I think I think I, think I put myself in the in the seat of the editor a lot when I'm watching somebody with that many plates spinning and they're pulling it off and I'm sucked in. I can suck myself out and go, this is this is a great job. I would I, I, I don't know if I could have done this. You know, that's always a good indicator to me when I'm like, when I, I kind of break a sweat and I'm like, I wow, I don't know what I would have done with this. Or at, at what at what point did they decide that this was working, you know? Um, and conversely, I look at movies that don't have, you know, things going on in them as hard as as hard as i work to make a movie uh you know flow and make a movie coherent and make a movie uh, absorbable by as many people as possible and and the process of getting a movie approved and sort of through through all the testing and everything and then i watch a movie that just kind of lays there and is not evolving or doesn't really have a point of view and i, I and i get kind of mad at the not the laziness but the kind of willful you know, ardiness of something that will also stick in my mind and and take me take me out of wanting to you know vote for a movie. You know, when when I, I'm I'm tough I'm tough on movies because I know how tough it is for me to get through the whole process of getting the movie across the line. And when I look at a lazy film. And I won't mention any names, but there was a huge movie last year done by a very high profile director. And I just thought it was really meandering. And I thought, why doesn't this, how did this get, (laughs) why did this get a pass and nobody, but I, you know, some of those things do creep into it when you're, when you're, when you're judging, I think you, I think about the whole process of, of filmmaking and the success or, you know, the, the failure of, of a movie to feel feel like something that I would have been in charge of or how that would have you know how that how that you know what, what what rigor what rigor it was put through, you know,
0: hey, so here's the deal. you've done numerous movies with this director. he clearly knows who you are fifteen thirteen, thirteen films he clearly knows who you are he doesn't have to go uh geez i I wonder who that guy's agent is. what's the value of having an agent
1: um I think for me. Because I do bring most of my own jobs in. The value of an agent is having a bad cop who will ask for things and push for things that I myself would be reluctant to. Um, I'm a kind of a cheerleader, people pleaser kind of a person. And I just want people to like me. And my agent is not afraid to say, that's not good enough. He needs this. You know, she can make me high maintenance by by, you know, remotely. Like I, I can I can get things served up to me and I can have her you know, I've been with this, my same agent, like my whole career, like, uh, she really kind of staked me when I was, uh, when I was uh, outside, when I when I was just coming into the business at, Sun, at Sundance, she kind of, we kind of connected through a friend, and, uh, and she staked me for my first couple of films without charging me a fee and waited until, waited to sign me until such a time as I was, I she was able to make me a deal that would Um, bring, you know, bring enough revenue that I wouldn't notice that I was paying her 10%. And I thought that was a really, I mean, that was a really kind thing to do and very human. And and I never get off the phone with her without laughing. Um, She's just great. So I think the value to me of having an agent is, I mean, there are, there are spaces in between jobs where they find you fix it jobs, they keep their ear to the ground. You know, I, I can't, can't be sure that mark is going to go on to the next thing he thinks he's going to go on to and that he's definitely going to take me along so she keeps me um in the game you know she keeps my name out there she keeps me meeting people um there's certainly four or five spots in my filmography where i've got stuff that that she scared up for me that weren't you know that weren't mark things so i just think you gotta you gotta have somebody it's like having a tax person or having a um you know you you just gotta have somebody else in there who's learned who's you know tracking you besides your wife uh or your partner you know who, who's gonna who's gonna keep keep an eye on things and and you know uh is gonna be there for you I've had i you know I've been on remote locations and called her upset you know wanting to get out of there and wanting to pull the plug and had her talk me off a ledge you know I, it's a you know I think it's I think it's an it's it's a necessary evil that's not even really an evil it's the way it's the way that the that the system is constructed and 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 so you if you want to play you know if you want to play ball you gotta you you gotta you gotta have one so hopefully you have one that's looking out for you who has, has understands your taste understands what you do or don't want to do and can give you good advice but i i think it's a, it's a it's it's a it's a required thing that um uh, we'll get you, you know, we'll get, we'll, we'll get you the best deal. And, and just as a, a, there as a, as a, as a panic button, you know, and certainly, certainly keep there's, I think there's myriad, myriad benefits for me in the end. I don't resent my agent.
0: <laughs> Talk to me about ego and the role of ego in the editing room. And what's the role of ego in, with an editor?
1: Ego is, is fairly inappropriate as an editor, uh, I, I think at least for me, I, I, as a younger editor, I used to get in a, in a snit when, you know, I was challenged or there were, you know, notes that second guessed me or, you know, felt like they were undermining what I was going for, or like they didn't understand. And I think it's very easy to be very dramatic and, and kind of uh high handed about that stuff. But as I've gone through the process enough times, my motto is sort of keep the drama on the screen, you know, like don't, you know, and and be, you know, you know, not be easygoing. I mean, I think you have to stick up for yourself and you have to stick up, you have to defend ideas. But I think, I think the best person, at least the way my relationship works with Mark, the best person to defend yourself to is the director. If you're getting notes from outside, you know, if you're being challenged, if you hear something as, if you hear something as a, as a, indicator of the way things are going or if you see if you if you see a trend going on that you don't agree with uh I think the person to express that to is the director and to empower them to defend you and say either, either through their either playing it as their own card or or you know just sticking up for the movie in general is to let them you know go into the fray I don't think it I don't think it empowers an editor to come off as you know stroppy or you know headstrong or make a big noise I, I just don't do, I don't do ego or, you know, sort of alpha dog sort of stuff. Well, that's not really my personality and you can't really fake it. And I know there are some people where, you know, they intimidate, you know, they have reputations and they intimidate and they throw chairs or there's, you know, there's there's legends of, of, you know, tough, tough ass editors who are hard to work with. And I, I can't really imagine that. I I feel like our role is to be a consigliere and to, to buffer those things. And I think the ego, ego and politics wise, the trickiest thing is to, is to build a bridge between the director and the studio and the producers and settle bets and remind the director that there's, you know, value in notes and try to, try to ease some of those creative tensions and not to bring them in yourself. You know, not to add to that. There's enough, Ego and enough, you know, push me pull you going on. And I think that if we if we add to that and get our backup as editors, it blocks the process. And as I said before, I've unlocked some real, you know, keeper stuff by taking an a note as a challenge rather than as a criticism, as you so nicely stated it. And and I also know that if you try to do notes badly just to serve them up badly to get people to get off of a note that you don't agree with, you can get stuck with it and they can really love it and be like, perfect, exactly. And you're like, no, 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 actually, if you're going to like that, I could do it better. But I I didn't really, you know, and so I really try to give I really try to give notes my all in 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 that you might have to be the way to go. And sometimes you surprise yourself. Sometimes a note will come along that you didn't see. Coming or that you know seems off tone and and you can really turn it into something. It's it's a it's 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 tri- it's tricky. But I I think that yeah I would just say the ego the e- ego ego of the editor and being easily bruised. You can you can rant to your assistants. You can use your cutting room as a sounding board to blow off all your steam. And I certainly do a lot. I download about what's in my head or what's in my heart, but. I kind of let it, I kind of keep it, I kind of keep it at work, you know, Um, and and, and try to keep it in the cutting room and don't let it spill over into the director's head because I feel like they have so much, they have so much going on. But then again, you have to stick up, you have to stick up for, you have to, you have to pick your battles and you have to stick up for the things, save that, save your ego for the things that are really important that are going to hurt the movie if you don't raise your hand if you don't stick up for them i try to own i try to play the cards that are best for the film rather than myself that's what's important the film the film is more important than we are as as individuals so if you really know that something's best for the film you you have to find the sympathetic ears and and explain explain to them why why you put something in there and why or why this why adding this piece of music here or taking this piece of music out is is not what's best for the film, you know, and and I find as it goes along, most of the things that you feel intrinsically as the editor wind up coming out on your side in the wash anyway, when they test and when they compare, it's like it's usually don't have to fight as hard as you think you do, because the signs will it signs will out what's what's the best version a lot of times just just by, um, you know, road testing things. So you don't you don't have to you don't have to scream and shout and stamp about everything. Well, also, when I get down the road sometimes and I look back over my shoulder after a year, if you catch your movie out of the corner of your eye or, you you know, you have to go to maybe it's released later on and you kind of find yourself trying to recall why you got so upset about things at the time. Like, you know, you're like, why would why did that seem so important? You know, this is all fine. And I and I and I freaked out and went to the mat for that. But in the end, I can't really remember why it was so important and the movie plays fine. And so comp, you know, it's it's a, a it, it's like anything, it's a it's a dance. But I think it's I think it's more more important to support the support the film and support the director um and and keep everybody keep everybody engaged and heard it's a tricky it's a tricky job it's the hardest part of teaching editing to students is the politics because in film school you're kind of taught to stick up for yourself and like you know you go with your gut and and nobody really teaches you about all the people that you have to keep together you know and how to how to you know all the the long, it's a long road of of getting a movie done and you're going to have to stare these people in the eye at the final mix you know you can't just blow things up as you go and 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 you also have to you know you also have to bring harmony where there's a lot of disarming so i think it's only part of the job to do the creative stuff uh in 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 your in your little woodshed and and in editing students just think i'm going to come out of here and be an editor and i'm going to stick up for myself and i'm just going to be the loudest voice in the room and that's not really the whole that's not really the whole job there's so much un politics to it, you know, There's really, it's, 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 and it's in the end, it is a creative thing because it, it begats the best film and it, 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 you can open people's minds and have them embrace ideas or have them sign off on things or get used to things. If you do it gracefully and empathetically, you can, you can impact the movie in a really positive way by being, you know, coerced by being by by pitching pitching your idea and getting getting through you know and sticking up for stuff so it's a lot it's a lot of responsibilities.
0: Yep. What what do you think the value of um audience screenings is? How do you feel about them?
1: I think what I've learned about audience screenings and I learned a lot about that from my director Mark Forrester who's very shrewd and really plays the chess game well is that um the test screening for you as filmmakers should only be about the film you're trying to make and should and you should you should only be concerned with the feedback that you're getting that influences and supports or negates the things that that are in line with your intentions and I think a lot of what you get back at a test screening is wild card ideas from audience members who don't know the movie and say I wish they left on a hot air balloon ride at the end or just ca- crazy notes that the studio sometimes is like yeah, yeah, what about a hot air balloon? You're like, no, that has nothing to do with our movie. But I think that, or or the audience notes become a tool for the studio to, you know, get their agenda across or to get them excited about what the potentiality of what the audience might whim, they might want to see on screen. And I think that Mark has taught me to read between the lines, look at the note behind the note, figure out what people are saying and basically decline the notes that are not applicable and use and and apply the notes that that tell you that you you've missed something or you're getting something wrong or that people are 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 interpreting things a certain way that that you don't want them to and and you know covering up those I think I think you have to be selective but I think they can be really illuminating but really only to you guys who are really in the dugout of the film, not on a broad scale. You know, let's talk about this at a giant table conference Zoom meeting with, you know, a hundred, you know, people from the studio that you've never met before. I think that I think that it it, they should be they should be ingested and taken in, in a in a in an intimate way with the with the filmmakers and they can be really illuminating, but they can also be used to roll over you. So you've got to be it's a, it's it's an art it's an art form the the test screening and and taking in the test screening and applying it to the movie or resisting applying it to the movie is is really a a a learned a learned art form and it takes a lot of steel to to uh to forward that stream properly and not get sucked sucked into the rapids of of opinions you know but i really i mean like we read you know we read all the cards and we read them we don't just look at the numbers we read the comments and we really try to glean what that stuff is because i feel like if you pull a hundred people and two people say i didn't understand this they're not the only ones everybody everybody who watches the movie has a note and has a reaction from your you know your wife your partner your assistants and anybody's impression at the at the moment anybody's knee-jerk impression is probably going to be echoed through the thousands of people that'll see the movie. That that isn't the only person who's going to come up with that notion. And so, if you tra- yeah, if you if you if you do your own data, you know notation and you track those impressions from the friends and family sort of cutting room first exposures all the way down to a big group of people at a mall somewhere in Paramus, New Jersey you'll see trends and you'll see things and you can you could actually bring them something back around and remind the director you know that's exactly what this person said two months ago you know that's i wouldn't say that that's an off-base thing to for people to be to be saying that and and, and it can actually help you sell an idea if you've got a solve in and your director's not accepting it or there you know there's there's a notion that you have you can sort of find you know, you know, compatriots for that by listening to what people say and and sort of saying, you know, this is like, this is like the fifth person that said they didn't know where they were when this happened. I think we should go with that other thing that you thought was too obvious that let them know where they were. And then, you know, that, that it can, it can, it can help you settle a bet, you know, if you're, if there's something that you're pushing for. So it's, they're not, they're not always to be refuted, you know, I think they can really be embraced and interpreted, and and be used for uh, for a myriad, myriad of purposes in, in selling selling the best version of the movie.
0: Use the screening audience for evil or for good, not evil. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it takes a lot. To, it take it takes a long time to come to that place. It's it's I don't I don't wouldn't say it's 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 easy. It's kind of like a firing squad. But but if you if you if you figure out what it what it means to you, and you figure out like what you can do with it in the long run, it can you can really you can really flip it because it's it's a potentially you know, pretty gnarly, pretty gnarly experience. But but I, I think that it, practice and pra- practice and restraint and kind of squinting your eyes and squinting your ears, uh, you can learn a lot. Fantastic.
0: Matt, thank you so much for a really illuminating conversation. I really appreciate all the time you spent with me.
1: Yeah, this was really fun. So great connecting. Thanks so much.
0: That's it for Art of the Cut this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you'd prefer to read this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to borisfx.com slash art of the cut, all one word, or borisfx.com AOTC, where there's a ton of great expert content for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven curated look at the craft of editing. Thanks to Matt Chesse, ACE, Thanks to John Chung for editing today's podcast. And thanks to our partner, Boris FX, and to our sponsor, Jump Desktop. Be sure to check them out at borisfx.com and jumpdesktop.com cut. I'm Steve Hallfish. Thanks for listening. And please tell all the editors and filmmakers that you know that to get more great Art of the Cut interviews every week, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app.